hymnals, page 855, where we'll be looking tonight at the incomprehensibility of God, looking in God's Word to Job chapter 11. Job 11, page 424 in the Bibles there in the rack in front of you. Remind you of this article where we're spending some time to look at God's attributes, His nature. We've looked at His nature, that of a single, simple, spiritual being, eternal. His attributes, that of eternality, and the rest as we are going to see it here. Let me read Article 1 for us. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. Tonight, that singular aspect of the Bible's teaching on God's incomprehensibility, and I want us to look together at Job chapter 11. Here, one of Job's friends is trying to correct Job. Remember that account, and God is permitting the devil to tempt Job, and Job's friends come, and they sit in silence for a number of days, and then they want to speak and try to uh, explain to Job that he's wicked, and God is crushing him because of his terrible sin. They think, in their very simplistic view of God, that they have God figured out, and they know just exactly what he's doing, and how Job should be responding. Now, Job's friends say many things that we shake our heads at, but there are, by God's grace, things that they say which are very true. And verses 7 through 9 are a few of those things that we recognize to be true. What they should have done in their speaking about God, however, is listen to their own words. For they say things about God that are true, that they themselves are not true. Adhering to. Well, let's listen to God's word. I'm going to start in verse 1 of Job chapter 11. Then Zophar the name, a answered Job's words and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men and when you mock shall no one shame you? They think Job is babbling, speaking nonsense. Verse 4, you, for you say, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit or the completeness of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than the place of the dead, Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. So far, the reading of God's unholy word this evening may add his blessing and clarification to it. Dear congregation, when you hear that word incomprehensible, what, is you, what do you think of? <clears throat> what is it that comes to your mind? Well, there are two temptations that we need to avoid when thinking about incomprehensibility. There are 
Well, there's probably more, but there are two that I want us to think about tonight, and that is, first off, agnosticism. There are those who say, well, we can't really know God. We can't even be sure if he exists, and they deny that God is knowable. But Scripture disagrees with that conclusion. Scripture teaches again and again that God is a God who reveals himself, who speaks clearly. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation confidently declares that God exists. And in the eyes of the world, the skeptic is the wise one. Oh, you're not being duped. But in the eyes of Scripture, it says it is the fool who denies that there is a God and that we are accountable to him. God is incomprehensible, but he is not unknowable. Well, secondly, mysticism. Another group that prides themselves in being spiritual, but also deals with God in a way that is dangerous. This group says God exists, to be sure, but their view is one of religious mysticism. We cannot know him. And they say things like this, because we cannot know God as he is in himself, we cannot say anything with real confidence about him. We cannot make confessional statements, to be sure, with any confidence. That would be presuming to put God in a box, to, to make him manageable for our minds. But God has revealed himself, and he's done so right here in 66 books. He has said from Genesis to Revelation, this is who I am. He has spoken in a way that is understandable. He has, as Calvin says, listed to us as a parent to an infant, speaking in ways that we understand, not as he is in himself to be sure, but in ways that are comprehensible, that we can comprehend. So the refusal to speak confidently about God amongst those who say that God is unknowable is a sense, they want to couch that in humility. Well, we can't know God as he is in himself, so we really can't speak about him. That's just the, that's just the humble way to go. That's the humble approach. That's, that's just saying we don't want to, to arrogantly speak. God is so different from us that we really cannot speak confidently about him at all. But as many have noted, that's humility in the wrong place. Yes, we should be very humble about our level of understanding concerning who God is, how much we can really grasp of God. We should be humble about our Christian life and our practice. We don't live as we ought to live. We've just a beginning, the catechism says. Even the most holy among us have a small beginning keeping the commandments. But nevertheless, we seek To live in keeping with all of God's commands as he has given them to us. We should not hesitate to speak about God as he has revealed himself to us in those words with those concepts that he has given to us. There is mystery in God, to be sure. The person who thinks that that, that he has God figured out or knows exactly how he's going to act or what he's going to to say or do is arrogant. But it isn't isn't the same as saying to say anything about God is arrogant or presumptuous because God does speak and he says, I want to be known. I want people to understand 
who I am, that I am love, that I am righteous, that I am just, that I am merciful. Speaking about God as mysterious is different than saying God is unclear and his word is beyond understanding. What that leads to, what that opens the door to is unholy living and to personal images of God. Well, we don't really understand all that God is, is, is saying, so we just have to live with, to the best of our ability, to the best of our capacity. Or we don't really know who God is in himself, so this is how I like to think about God. This is, this is what he is to me. Those are dangerous, that's a dangerous uh, conclusion when, when uh, that is the conclusion come to from those who claim that they just simply don't know God and so they have to do their best to live in a way that they think is best and to think of God in a way that they believe to be the most accurate or the, the best in their minds. Now, this has led to many much muddled ethics, and that's a big problem we have today in the church. Why is the church uh, uh, so confused about everything from how we're saved to, uh, to the process of sanctification? It's because we don't know God's Word. It's because we don't know who God is. It's because we think far less of God than we should, far less of His commands than we ought. And we have settled for, well, this is how I like to think of living for the Lord, rather than saying, what has God said? Jesus taught authoritatively and clearly about his Father, and his Father declared clearly what sin was. He went deep. He said to the religious leaders, you like to keep morality on the external. If you do this, if you keep all of these outward laws, you wash your hands, you, you take only a certain number of steps on the Sabbath, and you, you don't say this, and you don't do then you're okay. But he says, I want you to think about what's going on in your heart. And he says, that is where the sin is. As we heard last Sunday, what comes out of a man makes him impure. Some years ago, there was a movement in the evangelical church that embraced mystery as the, the central truth of Christianity. You could, if we could summarize their teaching, it went something like this. If we are mystified by God and find the teachings of the Bible to be difficult, then we're living close to the center of the faith. Now, we believe, but we don't pretend to understand or communicate what God has taught because he's so far above us. We're all on a journey, and we simply just have to do our best as we walk along because God is so mysterious. When you feel as though you don't understand God, then you are really going to walk by faith. And with that came this idea of if you're uncertain, then faith will increase. The less, you, the less confidence you have that you know the way of the Lord, then the more you'll hold on to him. But if you don't know him and you don't know the way, how is that going to increase your confidence? It's going to leave you scratching your head and hoping for the best. and You really aren't growing in a certainty. You're not growing in your walk with the Lord if you're not reading his word and understanding as best you can what it says and putting it into practice. You're growing further from him. They would say things like, we cannot use human language to speak truthfully about God. The mystery is the truth. Sounds very humble, sounds very pious, but it's also devilish. 
Sounds like a devilish way to undermine the authority and clarity of the Word of God. And in fact, one has, several have noted, it sounds like another religion altogether. Well, good question to ask when we're thinking about God's incomprehensibility is, how do we know what we know? Where is our authority? Where do we look? Where do we turn? It's true that whenever we speak of the infinite God, there is a level of mystery. There is a clear separation between creator and creature, which is a vast chasm that can never be fully bridged. And yet, we know about God and his commands because he speaks to us. We don't claim to know him fully, as he is in himself, and yet we know enough to know how to live, and we know what pleases him, and we know what we are to believe and what we are to reject. God knows himself perfectly, and therefore he is able to reveal himself to us in ways that are understandable to us. It's true he's infinite, we are finite, the finite cannot contain the infinite, we understand that. But what then is the doctrine of divine incomprehensibility? Well, it's summarized in this way, that we can understand God, we can comprehend who God is, though not fully. He is beyond us in his godness, in his infinitude. And I want to try to explain that as we move forward tonight. Last time we were together talking about these attributes of God, we saw Moses having met God on the mountain, and, and he says, who, who am I to say sent me when I go to the people? And he says, and God reveals himself and says, tell them I am who I am has sent you. And Moses takes that with him, and he's not really getting that complete answer, but he says, well, he's beyond my comprehension. I have to go with what he has said. And what happens after a lifelong service to God? What does he say at the end of his ministry to the people? Well, listen. He says, as he declares, or as he prepares to go to the mount and to die there, and he's speaking to those entering the promised land, he says this, there is none like God. That's all I can say. I can't can't compare him to something else that you know. I can't say, well, look at the gods in Egypt, and and he's all of those put together. He's just a better model. (laughs) No, he is above. He is perfect. He says before Pharaoh, there is none like the Lord our God. He could not know God completely. And nothing created can truly encompass God's infinitude. We, we speak by way of analogy. Because we're made in God's image, we, see, we can see something of God in man. He says, you are made in my image. So we see in man his love, his justice, his mercy, his compassion, at least in part because we're seeking to put that on display before the world. But certainly not in the, to the degree or to the capacity that God displays these things. They're dimly, at best, dimly exhibited in man. We recognize these analogies cannot be said to talk of God and his perfections. We can say God is, and then go on to say something about God, which he has said about himself in his word. It's permissible, but the doctrine of 
Incomprehensibility makes us go further. When we say God is, and we point to what God says about himself in the Bible, we must recognize that while we are speaking accurately about him, we are not speaking completely about him or in his fullness. We know degrees. God doesn't have degrees. He's not becoming more holy, becoming more just, becoming more wise. He is wisdom. He is holy. He is just, and so on. The Reformers, when they studied the Scriptures, said of God that he was both hidden and revealed. There is mystery about God. Paul says that. In Romans 11, when he's, after he has spoken of God and his great wonders, and this is how God reveals himself, he, he's a God who relates to us, a God who, who works on behalf of his people and in his creation. But Paul says at the end, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who knows the mind of the Lord in fullness? Romans eleven thirty four. Back in verse 33, he says, the depth of The depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. We could go back to the book of Job and we could look there. Job's friends understand that. Eliphaz says this in Job 5. He says, how God does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. And Job concurs. He said, God does great things, unfathomable and wondrous works without number. Job 9, verse 10. And then we saw it in Job 11. No one can know the completeness of God. Job 11, verse 7 is how we could translate the Hebrew there. David, too, says this, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. That was in our call to worship tonight. Psalm 145, verse 3. The profundity of his being is beyond us. His mercy, his love, his justice, his holiness, beyond our full comprehension. We are on holy ground here, and I can only say I am not capable. No one is capable of saying something that would capture God in his fullness. So we know in part, and we are to be growing in knowledge He's greater than any superlative I could use. And yet that is how we speak of him. So we recognize that he is great, greater than anything we can fathom. Well, I want to make a few applications of this doctrine to the Christian life in our final point tonight. The incomprehensibility of the divine nature should teach us humility Caution and reverence, A.W. Pink says in his book on this. Humility, caution, and reverence. How do we live? How do we act? How how should we relate to God? Well, we should walk before him in humility, cautiously, and with reverence. God isn't just a pal. He's not just a friend. Yeah, he's always there for me, and he's just so good to me, and he's just so great. We see things the same way. Well, there's some truth to the fact that we should be seeing things as God sees them, for that is the only way to see the world, the way God sees it. But there is a vast chasm in that statement as well. God sees things as they are perfectly, and we can only begin to understand. 
After all our study, we say with Job in Job 26, verse 14, After all that I've seen, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper we, do we hear of him. We must be humble. We must be careful in how we speak of God. We cannot correct him. Paul says the question is an The question that we know the answer to, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? No one knows his mind completely fully and says, oh, I know what you need to do because I see all things fully in the present. No, only God knows in that way. Only God has that knowledge. We catch but a glimpse of God, the back of God, as God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 33 and 34. We speak and we do so according to his word so that we might speak accurately and not speculate when we say, well, I don't know, God hasn't really said anything, but I would like to think that this is what God would do if he would reveal more to us. Or I think I do know what God uh, had in mind here, and, and it all makes sense to me. You know, there's a certain mystery in, in how God acts, in, in how he works. And we say, I don't know, and I won't know fully in this life. But I humbly and carefully Defer, submit to the sovereignty of God and knowing this, that he is all wise, all good. And therefore what he does is beyond my judgments. And dare not speculate. And connected to that, that third one we just mentioned, we speak with a holy reverence. God must be spoken of with reverence. We must look to him, towards him with reverence, not carelessly, making him look just like a bigger, better us. Well, this is how I would do it, so I'm guessing God would probably do it just a little bit better. (laughs) Again, there's not degrees here. When God does something, he does it perfectly. So we speak, or we, in our comprehension of this doctrine, we speak and think with humility, caution, and reverence. Well, secondly, we should lead us to awe. We can't begin to understand just how great God is. R.C. Sproul was once asked, why are so many Christians against Reformed theology? And he said that when people talk with him, they express strong disagreements with the doctrine of sovereign election. That's the one that really is a hang-up for them. They, they see God as arbitrarily choosing who he chooses. And it brings a shadow upon God's character. They say, well, he's just, he's just picking arbitrarily. No, no. What I think is if he's going to choose someone, it's because he sees something in them. That's, that's what I think. And that's what I think the Bible teaches. And... He says, that's what they struggle with. And he says, all I can say to them is, you don't understand your Bibles and you don't understand who God is. You don't understand just how holy he is and just how sinful you are. 
Stop right there, Pastor. Just don't, don't go any further. That, that's enough. He said something else. He said that when I meet people, they say, oh, two of your books that meant the most to me are the holiness of God and chosen by God. I loved holiness of God. Just what a glorious picture of God. I hated chosen by God. And he said, well, he says, well the only thing I can imagine then is they, they didn't understand holiness of God. <laughs> Or they didn't understand chosen by God. Or maybe a little of both. They haven't understood how holy God is and how sinful we are. We think, well, God's just a little better than us. And that's bridgeable. We just try a little harder and do a little better. And... That's where we get to the incomprehensibility of God. We, we don't understand his holiness. We don't understand his righteousness. We don't even understand ourselves. The truth is we have only a very small understanding of who God is, particularly in his holiness and righteousness. When we compare him to ourselves, we don't grasp just how holy he is and how righteous he is and how much he hates sin and how much he did to redeem us and how all the glory belongs to God. He says, when we understand that, our only, we recognize our only hope of salvation under heaven is the sovereign grace of God. Now, that doesn't mean we're to be crushed by that, to say, well, I guess we're just nothing to God. We're just bits of dust that he just wants to stand upon. No, it actually reveals how loving he is, that he has come down and that he has done everything. He has given his own son to redeem us. He says, this is how much I love you. I am giving my own son that you might not be crushed. Isaiah says, it was the father's will to crush him that he might have offspring, that he might have eternal offspring. And the son said, this is what I want to do because I see man's plight and there is no way for them to come to you apart from a divine work. We could just spend all night looking at all the passages which are, illustrate this. Think of Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus chapter 10. What do they do? They bring strange fire before the, before the Lord. What does the holiness of God do to their strange fire? Consumes them. God says, don't. Don't come before me in your way or your understanding. A fearful portrayal of God. We can think of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. What do they do? They stand against God's chosen leader. And what does the earth do? It opens up and it swallows them up. And then there's the other side. God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah and he says, My people are laying their children on the altar of Molech, something I never imagined. And yet, I will forgive them. Think of the imagery of the sin that we commit against God. And yet he says, but my Grace and mercy shall prevail as my righteous demands are met by myself. We don't understand 
the depth of his holiness, nor do we understand the depth of his love, his forgiveness. We cannot possibly begin to imagine how deep his forgiving love is. He speaks to us and we see, and yet we have such a small view of forgiveness. It should leave us in awe and say, I, I, I don't know what to say. I, I, I've never seen this. And I could give illustrations to somehow, as an analogy, say, well, I remember, the, remember this story when so-and-so gave up their, and you can go through all of the stories, but nothing, nothing like what God has done in giving his own son. Let me use a Bible story to illustrate our understanding of forgiveness, our understanding of what's required. Children, you remember the story of Joseph, don't you? Joseph is taken by his brothers, and he's put in a pit, and they see these Midianite traders come along, and they give Joseph to the traders, and they, they, they betray him. They wish that he would just die. And years later, they find themselves before Joseph. They've seen what he has become. They've betrayed him. They wished him dead, and they see what he's become. He's become a lord in Egypt. And Joseph says, bring my father. I want to see him. Bring my brother. When they see him, they know he has the power to destroy them. And when the father dies, when Jacob dies, they go to Joseph and they say to him, Joseph will, or they say to themselves, Joseph will surely hate us and will pay us back for all the evil that we did to them. What do they recognize? That they did evil. Wickedness. And they know what they deserve. They've come to a, a clear understanding of what it is they deserve. And they come to Joseph you know what happens. Express themselves, pleading for their lives, asking for his kindness. And Joseph, he forgives. He doesn't, he says, I'm not in the place of God. God can forgive evil. He can forgive wickedness. You know what you deserve. You know what I'm able to do. But I will forgive. We catch a glimpse of who God is when we multiply the sins of Joseph's brothers against Joseph infinitely. <clears throat> and then we have our offense before our holy God, our righteous God. And he pours out his wrath against our sin upon his son. We can hardly comprehend his forgiving grace. What the Bible shows is that God, as he is in himself, is so far beyond our comprehension. We can't 
understand him intellectually. We can know him relationally as he reveals himself to us, as he shows his back to us, as he did to Moses, enough to leave us in awe. But we really don't understand just how glorious he is in his perfections. And we are left to say with Moses, who is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? And we can only be lost in wonder, love, and praise when we ponder our great God. And the study of theology is, theology proper is so exhilarating because the more we learn about God, the deeper we go into our understanding of the Christian life because God wants us to be like him. Say, well, theology just seems, theology proper just seems like, well, yeah, okay, God's there and we're here and okay, we got it. But God says, I want you to consider who I am that you might become more like me. That my glory might be seen on earth. The more expansive our understanding of God, the more expansive our understanding of Christian living becomes. The deeper we understand love, the deeper we understand forgiveness, the deeper we understand righteousness, the deeper we understand mercy. And then that leads to glorying in God. This contemplation of God, this contemplation of his incomprehensibility leads us to glory in God. Spurgeon says this, Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the study of Christ and him crucified. I'll say it again, the more we learn about God, the bigger he becomes, the more wondrous he becomes. The world becomes a more wonderful place for here we are to see more of him in us. We learn of his love, his goodness, his compassion, his forgiveness, his generosity, and so on. And this leads us in our lives to become fuller, our life to become fuller and more meaningful as we seek to reflect those attributes in our lives, where it leads to greater companionship, greater community, as that community which is in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It leads to more praise, to more glory in him. Tonight, I've tried to help us to see that studying about God is not a mere abstract intellectual exercise, but it is to be a heart-stirring, a heart-stirring exercise to inform our living. And God says, you can't, God does not say to you, you can't understand me, so don't even bother. He says, I have revealed myself to you that you might see where I want you to be and how I want you to live. I want you to see my great love, my forgiveness, my justice. All wrongs will be righted. It is not yours to take revenge. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. You go and love To go higher up and deeper in leads to richer living. Higher up and deeper in to this great and incomprehensible God whom we serve, who has created us and who has redeemed us. That is what it's about. That we might say, 
from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, holy and lifted up, you are one who does draw near to the repentant, to the humble, one who comes near and lifts up and strengthens. Lord, may we hear these words rightly tonight. We hear of our sin as your word sets it before us. It's not meant to lead us to despair entirely and to think, well, I'm not worth the flesh that I have. No, it's meant to lead us to an end of ourselves that we might look up to see your glory and to see your wondrous work, which is equally set forth in the scriptures, that redeeming work that says, you are mine. I delight in you. I have forgiven you. Now go and live for the glory of my name. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to know your word. Lead us by your spirit to go higher up and deeper in. That our love for you would grow. That our love for others would grow. That you would be the focus of our lives. Hear us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.